Hi everyone, my name is Christian Malone. I'm the co-president of Wharton Fintech and your host. Today, we have Jamie Finn, the co-founder and president of Securitize, a leading platform for digitizing securities in the blockchain. Securitize was founded in January 2018 and recently raised a Series A round with investors including Coinbase Ventures, Ripple, and Blockchain Capital. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us today. Very happy to be here, thanks. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience prior to Securitize. Yeah, so I mean, I've had kind of a mix, uh, mixed bag career starting with uh, my own startups uh, when I graduated from school in Boston, then kind of moving to New York. I spent six years in New York doing a variety of different kind of mobile advertising, mobile content uh, startups. I joined Ericsson. I moved to Europe with Ericsson, headed up sales of Napster Global there for a year in Sweden. From there, I moved to London um, and actually joined a large telco called uh, Telefonica or O2, um, which is where I met my co-founder, Carlos. And uh, when I was there, I had a variety of different roles, but ended up as the VP of innovation for uh, Telefonica Europe. And uh, in that role, we made a bunch of acquisitions, developed a bunch of products together. And so Carlos and I worked together on almost all of those projects. Uh, eventually, I moved back to the States um, from uh, London uh, and moved to California. And in, because my sister was here and my parents were here, so we all decided to live in the same place for a little while. And uh, here I've worked at, uh, so two startups, um, uh, one called Cantera to a mobile, another one called Sansa Security to Arm. Did a mobile ad startup after that, because it's selling startups is quite hard. <laughs> um, did a mobile ad startup, which uh, with a couple friends, I joined them. And, uh, that's been going pretty well. Um, I left when we founded Securitize uh, last year, so it's been pretty intense. So you have a pretty extensive background. What initially drew you to the blockchain space? Um, well, so I was kind of surprised that um, it was possible to do sort of uh, triple entry accounting. It's sort of this weird, nuanced concept, but I mean, the idea that you and I can agree on something and then there can be a third party source of truth is very appealing to me. Um, and that combined with obviously the hubris that was around kind of early or a little while back around cryptocurrencies. I kind of started to get into that and then I heard about ICOs and I was like, oh, this is really cool. I can invest in a company really easily. Um, and then I found that I wasn't actually investing in a company. I was buying the future use of a platform, which wasn't actually great. Um, and then I heard about, then well, I didn't really hear about it. My friend Carlos came to me and said, I'm doing a security token offering. Uh, and I was like, what's that? And that was kind of exactly what I had been looking for as an investor. Can you tell us how an STO is different from an ICO? Is an STO just the new ICO? Yeah, well, it's not really a new ICO, right? So technically, um, an ICO is really um, people who want to see a product get built and are willing to pay in advance um, for the use of that product. So you're not investing in the company. That's a big difference. With an STO, what we call a digital securities offering, right? So you're actually getting a piece of that asset. So you're buying equity, you could be buying debt, you could be buying ownership in a piece of property. So there's a variety of different things, but you're actually, that security that you're buying and that token that you get represents ownership of a real asset. And th is that the primary benefit of tokenization relative to ICOs? Well, I think the primary benefit is um, it's a better, I think it's, the other option is really holding it um, in your email, right? So you signed a document with somebody around a private placement and they send you an email back with the document that you signed. And maybe there's an entry on some spreadsheet in some lawyer's office 
of your amount of investment in a cap table. Maybe, right? But you don't really know because you can't see it because that's not disclosed to all the investors, right? So try to get a detailed cap table from everybody, it's difficult. So um, in this scenario, what we're doing is you take the cap table, you put it on the blockchain, so it's totally public, it's hashed, so the identities are secret, but if you know who you are and, and you know what you own, you'll see it reflected in a dashboard and you'll have those tokens in your wallet, be it your own personal or a custody wallet if you end up wanting to do that. So it's just basically, Take what you do with paper and faxes and replace it with um, actual web threes types offerings, and that's what you get. So it's just a, you know, it's fundamentally a better product as compared to paper. And leading into that, what does Securitize do? Um, so essentially, what we do is we offer um, a platform to run your primary issuance uh, end to end. So all of the kind of onboarding of investors. There's a lot of different rules around how you onboard investors. So one of the really interesting things about this is capital formation. You can actually raise money from the whole planet, which is something you can't do normally. It's hard. Um, through a software platform, you can do that, right? So it opens up your reach to the whole world. And then as you onboard those investors, uh, they need to do, be taken through KYC, know your customer, AML, anti-money laundering checks. And then you'll have to accredit them depending on the countries that they're from. Um, so we do all of that um, through the platform as a white label service. And then our team will actually write the smart contract that represents the paper contract. Um, and then the issuance will be run. All the investors will see their tokens. And then we provide a dashboard to all of the investors for you to communicate with them, share updates for them to log in and be able to see their balances, to manage your account. Kind of anything you'd ever want to do as an investor in a company, you can do through a single dashboard where all the information is always available to you. And then additionally, there are um, liquidity providers or platforms where you can trade these uh, securities. Um, and so there's integrations that we do with them so that this token can then be traded on those marketplaces. And are these smart contracts being written on the Ethereum blockchain? Or? Yeah, right now it's all ERC-20. Um, you know, we've announced uh, an investment from Ripple, and so we're actively looking at that. Um, we're actively looking at uh, IBM's Hyperledger uh, platform. We think it could be really interesting for private um, debt issuances. So we're working on that with them. So there's a, a variety of different blockchains we're looking at, but you have to look at, um, it's not just about people worry about throughput and how many transactions. That's a really interesting theoretical debate. The reality is there's almost no volume on any of these chains right now. And for what we do, we don't need high volume. Um, what we need is infrastructure that exists. And Ethereum is the only one where there's actually end-to-end -end infrastructure from custody to marketplaces to exchanges to every single piece that you need to be able to deploy these things as a security exists already. And what securitizes revenue model? Our revenue model is really straightforward, right? So we don't have some sort of crazy token model that we sold to somebody, retail investors. We didn't do any of that. It's SaaS, right? So there's upfront fees and there's monthly fees for us to run the platform. And that's how it works. And what's an example of a securitized customer? Yeah, so um, you can see them on our website. We are not a broker dealer, so we don't uh, market offerings and raise money for people, which is important to clarify. So the ones I'll talk about are the ones where the issuance has been completed. So we have um, uh, Spice VC, which was our first project. After that, um, Blockchain Capital, which is probably the most famous VC in the space and also our lead investor. In fact, the reason, uh, one of the big reasons they invested is they started working with us. So not only are they a customer, but they're also an investor. Um, we have Science Inc. that's out as well. Um, 22X Fund, which is a tokenized fund. 
um, a company called Augmate, which does an IoT uh, platform, and then um, Aspen Coin, so the St. Regis Hotel in Aspen, Colorado. A chunk of it was tokenized, and that's on our platform. So it seems a lot of your portfolio is skewed towards tokenizing VC funds. Mm -hmm. Are there certain types of businesses or verticals where tokenization is a better fit? Well, I mean, I think um, it's sort of a, a loaded question, right? So it's, it is um, mail that you get in a post box better than mail you get in your email box, right? So like for me, email is better than snail mail, as it were. And so I think it's applicable to all of them. I think um, it's a better solution overall um, because it digitizes everything and, and makes it so that there's an immutable proof of ownership, which is unique. Right? So I don't think it's necessarily better for one or another. I think there's different thresholds of liquidity. Um, and I think that the amount of liquidity certain projects will have will be higher or lower. Um, the reason I think we have a lot of funds initially is because um, as an investor, that's an asset class that's kind of hard to get access to. And it's great to have professional investors selecting your portfolio as opposed to you trying to pick winners, which is very hard. And how do you ensure adequate liquidity across all these assets that are being securitized? Yeah, so there's a number of different uh, mechanisms that the issuers use themselves. So we're not kind of managing liquidity, but uh, we've implemented a variety of technologies like uh, Bancor, B-A-N-C-O-R, which provides uh, limited liquidity through a share buyback mechanism. Um, we're working with Open Finance, um, which is the first platform for trading digital securities. Uh, it's in the U.S., um, and you can register there and sign up to, to buy and sell these things. And then we're working with uh, like 10 other marketplaces and exchanges that are deploying what's known as our digital securities protocol, which allows for compliant trading in the secondary market. As soon as our protocol is adopted, they can list these securities, assuming they sign a contract with the company, with the issuer, and then they can trade them. And you've touched on compliance a number of times. How do you ensure compliance in issuing and trading digital securities, not just in the U.S., but globally? Yeah, sure. So this is, a, so this is one of these problems which we came up against, which was, um, okay, we want to list this security for sale on open finance. Um, how do we do that? And then we realized that they said to us, well, we just need to know how many slots we can have and you know, who's what country and how it works. And we th thought that that was kind of hard and weird. And so we developed this software. And in the software, there's... Um, essentially two major components and you can read the white paper on our website if you're interested but essentially you can think of it there's a compliance manager and there's a whitelist right and so the compliance manager has all of the rules around the issuance each issuance has its own set of rules because companies have different ways they want investors to be able to trade these things and then the whitelist is all of the information around the investor okay and so what happens is if you want to execute a trade the exchange basically says can person a trade this to person b They'll ask the compliance manager. So if it was, imagine it's a person, right? You ask them, hey, I got this guy from Germany who wants to sell a security to the guy in the U.S. Uh, they're both accredited investors and it's past the one-year lockup period. Then the compliance manager say, oh, yeah, okay, that's okay. Check, right? And then that would be allowed to process. The guy from Germany would get added to the whitelist and then the trade would process and the, the tokens would be exchanged. Similarly, if you had something like... Um, hey, we've got this guy in the U.S. who wants to sell his security um, to somebody in the Ukraine. It would go and it would check and it would say, hey, can we execute this trade to somebody in the Ukraine? And it would say no, actually, because Ukraine's on a blacklist right now. Right now, this changes. And so that we cannot execute that trade and so the trade wouldn't be processed. And so there's the, the, this compliance manager basically has a variety of rules that it enforces. Just like in the real world, you'd have a human doing it. We have a piece of software. Makes a lot of sense. 
And you've recently discussed a shift from tokens to digital securities. Could you talk a little bit about that shift? Yeah. So one of the one of the problems in this space is the legacy of crypto and the lack of information and knowledge about how this all works. Right. So you know, in many cases, we'll be dealing with um, investors who are anxious and nervous because they think it's somehow related to the price of Bitcoin or Ethereum and how these pieces fit together. It should be made really clear that. There is no linkage between cryptocurrencies and digital assets that are issued on a blockchain. This is a really weird concept. It's not easy to understand, right? But crypto is basically a public blockchain. And so companies like ours develop applications that are then um, deployed on top of uh, platforms. In this case, a platform we're using is Ethereum. But it could just as well be, you know, you could compare it to developing an app and uh, launching in the app store on your iPhone, right? It's the same idea. iPhone is a platform. Ethereum is a platform. We're using Ethereum as a platform to run our application. And that is about it. And so we feel that a digital security is a better way of embodying what the asset actually is, as opposed to a token, which, you know, is, is sort of a tainted word in a lot of ways. And in, for many people, a security token is actually a, a thing that's given to you by your company, which is like an RSA tag. And that's what a security token actually is if you Google it. So it's not a great concept, I don't think. So just like apps built on the App Store don't, don't have a relation to Apple's stock price, right. you similarly wouldn't have exposure to direct exposure to crypto prices. Exactly. And, and I would say this much. For issuers uh, and for investors, it's actually quite good that the price of Ethereum is low when you're talking about digital securities because it means processing transactions is cheaper. Hmm. Expensive Ethereum makes processing more expensive. Interesting. So there might be a natural upper bound to... We would hope so. And could you uh, describe the mechanics of Securitize's digital securities protocol and then any challenges in implementation and adoption? Yeah, I mean, so the, the protocol, like I mentioned, has a variety of different rules in it and the rules are country-specific and issuer-specific. So each one of the like different striations in that um, creates some complexity, right? So I can give you an example of we have one customer who... In the U.S., a venture fund can have up to uh, 100 investors, including the GP, so really 99. Um, and so, but they may not want to have that threshold implemented. We had one that wanted to implement 50. They wanted a cap of 50 investors from the U.S. and an unlimited amount of foreign investors. We had another one who actually said, you know what, we want 84 of them. And then we can have, you know, the foreign investors don't count. If you're an onshore fund, the rules are different again, right? So onshore versus offshore funds, totally different rule set. Um, and operating businesses, different rule sets. So an operating business in the U.S. to stay private um, has to have less than 2,000 shareholders of record. Now, these shareholders of record can include broker-dealers. So this is how Uber, for example, stays private for a really long time, is they have one entry in their cap table that is a huge broker-dealer that's got millions of people investing, but they still count as one. Um, the same thing is applicable to, this, uh, to our platform. So you can have up to 2,000 investors in a uh, operating business without having to go and start reporting to the SEC. But if you break that threshold, then you have to start reporting. So we enforce a regulation to stop that. Got it. And the security token offering industry now has multiple players, Harbor, Temple, and Republic, mm -hmm. competing for a small but growing pie. How do you differentiate yourself from other competitors? So we've opted to go extremely narrow in our offering, right? So there's a lot of the companies you've mentioned that have broad-based solutions where they try to do everything end-to-end. -end. Um, we've realized quite – we've been at this for – probably as long, if not longer than most, um, it's really hard to do everything well. In fact, just doing issuance and lifecycle management well is really hard. 
right? So we're, we're keeping up with it, but it's a lot of work and we have a big team working on it. Um, so, you know, the Republic actually is a partner of ours that we work with extensively. Um, uh, Harbor, we think is a great company. We're looking forward to seeing more of their offerings. So, you know, from, from our point of view, it's stay narrow, um, execute just issuance, and then partner like crazy. So we, that's why I say partner with Templum, partner with Republic, partner with T0, uh, all the open finance, all these different um, outliers we're partnering with. And we're also not a broker dealer, so we're not trying to raise money, which means we have our customers go to broker dealers, and that is actually quite beneficial to them because then they have a professional fundraiser helping them through that process. Can you talk about product development at Securitize? Is it a culture of, of no, for example, you're trying to narrow it down the things you're doing? Um, it's not necessarily a culture of no. We're very much customer-driven, um, so we have a bunch of customers asking us for all sorts of features all the time. And so we try to like take a lot of that in, listen, and then... Um, filter it down to what the you know the, the macro features need to be um, in the early phases of a platform development you're going to be doing a lot of customization um, and then eventually the customization becomes a feature in a future release so we're in a we started version one we then just released version two you know we'll release version three in the next you know 90 days or so uh, and that version will encompass a lot of the learnings and some really cool new features that multiple customers have been asking us for and kind of demanding. We're seeing, a, a, you know, um, an ex people are starting to use these platforms as methods to replace their traditional paper-based stuff. And as they do that, you have to think multi-product, multi-company solutions, and that kind of changes everything. Do you see traditional banks and broker-dealers entering the SDO space? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's inevitable. The timeline is long, but it is inevitable because for the most part, they sell very similar products today. They're just only in their own private banking systems. And so, you know, you could buy into, you know, the argument would be, what's the difference between buying into a tokenized venture fund versus a regular venture fund? Well, uh, one of them, you know what you own and the other one, you don't. <laughs> like, it's that clear. And so, you know, I think the tokenized ones, once the custody solutions are there and the big uh, banks are comfortable with it, it's a very viable business. And we touched on this a little bit before, but do you see any limits to tokenization of the economy? Um, no, I, again, I, I think the limits are really around the amount of liquidity that different things will happen. Um, I know it's a bit grandiose, but I, I feel that, you know, in... 15, 20 years time, everything that's traded on all of these large global exchanges, so I'm, I'm using exchange versus marketplace. Today we're only trading on marketplaces, not on exchanges. But in the future with these, like a NASDAQ or somebody like that would be able to list these types of digital securities right next to a share, right? And the difference would be one of them has a centralized ledger through DTCC and the other one's using the Ethereum blockchain or some future blockchain that we haven't thought of yet. And the, the investor experience is exactly the same one, they get to know exactly what they own, and the other one, they have to assume that DTCC is doing it properly. And what, are, what needs to happen to gain widespread adoption for digitizing securities, either from a regulatory or consumer perspective? I mean, I think more clarity from the regulator around uh, the proper way of doing a digital securities offering uh, and selling it and it trading would be helpful. Um, you know, we're hopeful that that dialogue will continue over the next 12 months. Uh, and we'll see, like, I think it's all about clarity, um, which the SEC has been really good at giving kind of guardrails. And if you're staying within those guardrails, you might be okay, but it would be really nice to have somebody say, yeah, you're totally fine. And then I think everything opens up. So what are the biggest regulatory concerns for securities? Um, so I think the secondary market trading rules aren't crystal clear because no one's actually done a lot of it. It's all been kind of 
hand to phone call to between people, kind of OTC type trades. When this thing becomes automated um, at scale with global capital formation, that's a new space. And I think that you know how one country deals with another country, because the U.S. is obviously the largest and most important financial market, but there are other financial markets, and they also have regulators, and those regulators also have opinions. And so, you know, encompassing all of those rules and having all those groups work together, I think, is a really big future challenge. Securitize recently raised $12 million in for their Series A. Uh, we mentioned before yeah. the, the range of investors. How did you come to choose those investors and how did they choose you? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, like I said, Blockchain Capital was the lead and that was because we had been working together. And then uh, they were kind enough to make some introductions and connections uh, to some folks. And, you know, we, we are very much a global company from the start. Um, you know, we, we started, you know, Carlos, my co-founder, was in Dubai when we founded the company, right? So we kind of started global and we really recognized that having a diverse investor base from all over the world, I mean, we have investors um, from Hong Kong, from Japan, um, from Europe, uh, from Latin America, and from the US. You know, in covering those continents and having a large partner there that you could ask questions to is super valuable. And also when you talk about um, liquidity in this world, it's global. And so if you don't have a global pool that you're pulling from, you're missing out on an opportunity. And how did you decide how much money to raise? That's a great question. I mean, so, you know, we started out thinking uh, we'll do a smaller raise. And uh, in the conversations with a variety of the different VCs, you know, they kind of said, well, you know, you might want to think about doing something a little bit bigger because um, it'll give you more runway. And, you know, we initially thought about doing, you know, kind of one year's operations and then talking to them, they're like, you should really plan for much longer time. So it was really a, a kind of a negotiation and so we ended up, you know, with a, the money that we've raised is about two years worth of operations with zero revenue. Luckily, we don't have zero revenue, but it gives us a nice long runway to figure out the market and be able to invest in things when we see a unique opportunity. Why do you think they were pushing you for a longer time period? Do you think that fundraising is going to dry up? Yes, absolutely. We've seen it happen. And I think fundraising is getting increasingly challenging. I don't know that, um, you know, I don't think that there's going to be 50 different um, issuance platforms funded. Um, simply because integrating with exchanges, they're not going to want to integrate with 50 different companies. It's a pain in the ass. And so they want something. They're going to have, I think there'll be you know, a few big players. Um, and I think a lot of the bets have been made. Um, you know, I think there will be definitely future mega competitors that will appear. But right now, I think it's, it, you know, for the next 18 months or so, I think it's execute and deliver. And the people who are doing that will be well positioned for when this thing gets in scale. So VCs usually think about, you know, product risk, market risks, execution risk. It's which one do you think is the biggest risk for Securitize right now? Uh, market risk. Yeah. So that's the biggest risk for us. I, you know, execution risk is low. We're already doing it. We've already launched a variety of offerings. Um, the, the overall product market fit is there. We can see the demand. I mean, we have thousands of applications that come through our uh, portal. In fact, we're hiring <laughs> if anyone's looking for a job out there. Um, but we, you know, for us, it's really when does this, um, you know, market happen at scale? And when does capital formation happen at scale with it? And what do you think would delay that? Would it be regulatory concerns? Would it be concerns around crypto in general, the lengthening of a crypto bear market? Yeah, absolutely. I think those are two of the most important factors. Got it. And you mentioned before a lot of an extensive prior operating experience. What kind of experiences do you draw upon for your role as president? Um, so right now, it's a lot of um, patience and perspective, right? So 
you know, we see a ton of things coming through the door. A lot of people are excited. Things are happening. It's like, you kind of have to keep an even keel, right? Because I've been through the startup thing before and you have these unbelievable highs and these unbelievable lows. And, you know, if you spoke to me a few months ago, we were in the trough of despair and it was brutal. Um, and you kind of come out of that and you're like, oh, okay, everything's okay. But nothing's ever really okay. And nothing's ever really not okay. Like, it's just like, this is why they call it work, right? Like you have to keep working at it and figuring it out. And so, you know, we do that every day and there's change is constant. People are challenging, customers are challenging, but I'm appreciative of both because without them, we don't have a business. And scaling a startup is challenging enough as it is. Do you think working within the blockchain ecosystem makes it more or less so? Well, I think previous, like as of a few weeks ago, it was harder. Now it's a lot easier um, because some of the biggest companies in the space are kind of cutting back and getting ready for this real uh, hibernation that's happening. And so for us, at least hiring has gotten a lot easier um, than it was before. You know, and obviously when people don't want to necessarily work for an unfunded startup, you know, we built this company from scratch and operated for a year just based on collecting money from our customers and delivering active working product. And then we raise the money and everybody shows up and they're like, oh, we want in. And you're like, okay, cool. But, you know, so it's a, it's this balance. And so it's easier now to hire. Um, it's maybe a little bit more difficult because employees have certain expectations around deep amounts of equity they deserve. And we can't really service that because we have a company that's worth tens of millions of dollars. It's not a non-existent, you know, startup. And what attributes do you look for in these early hires? Um, we want people who are flexible. Uh, you're gonna, you may start in one role and move to another and then go back to your role and you know, fill in a gap for a little while. And it's just, it's really about people who want to learn um, and be actively engaged. The hours are weird. Um, you know, it's, we're probably in the office more of a nine to five, but like, you know, for me at least, you know, I'm up at seven. We manage a lot of our company through WhatsApp right now because we're all, we're in Israel, we're in the US. And so we manage a lot of the conversation through that. So there's, you know, there's early, there's late, and it's, you know, people need your feedback because there isn't, we're not deep, right? It's not like there's 15 project managers running something, there's one. And so he's got to do a lot of stuff. And, and so that's like just the reality of a, of a startup is you're thin. And so the hours are going to be longer and hopefully the rewards are better. And given that blockchain is such a new industry, most people probably don't have extensive working experience in this space. Not so, important. So what do you, okay. Yeah, so what not, else do you look for? I mean, we just, again, we want people who've worked, um, ideally, you know, if, uh, a few years that have a track record of delivering, right? It's all about delivery. What have you done and when have you delivered something? If you can show me a track record of delivery, then I'm really comfortable with that. And what advice do you give to either MBA students or other people looking to break into FinTech? Um, I think the, the biggest challenge we have is around salaries, you know, like people want to get paid investment banking salaries at fintech startups. And like, we don't have that kind of money because we don't do those types of deals. So I think that that's one of the areas that probably needs a bit of a, a reset and understanding. Um, you know, I think that the, there's a huge amount of opportunity for someone who's willing to spend a few years cutting their teeth and making it happen uh, in fintech startups, but they do tend to take a little longer to, to manifest themselves. And what's in store for Securitize and, and the crypto market for 2019? Um, so we are uh, looking just to kind of expand our uh, portfolio to get up to about 100 issuances by the end of the year, uh, end of 2019. That's our goal. We've got uh, six as of the launch of this podcast. So we should be up to about 100 by the end of the year. So we have a long, long way to go. And what about for, uh, for crypto prices, if you care to opine? Um, 
I don't know. I think there's a normalization happening. And, uh, you know, when I started investing in this space, I was blown away that, uh, you know, I bought Ethereum for like a few dollars and I was like, oh, it's worth 20 bucks. Oh, it's worth 40 bucks. Oh, it's worth $400. Oh, wait, it's worth a thousand. What? Like, it didn't make any sense. Like, we were just joking. It was ridiculous. It made no sense. Um, so I think there's just a rationalization happening and uh, things will normalize. You know, I don't think we're going to see, um, you know, Ethereum a thousand again. I don't think that's a thing. I think Bitcoin has a you know more of a store of value. I believe in that more of a store of value because I was there through 2008 when the whole world ended. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I'd slice off a piece of gold and give it to somebody. But actually Bitcoin, I could slice off a piece and it has an intrinsic value that people recognize. And so I, I feel like that is a real asset. A lot of the other stuff I just don't get. Jamie, we'd love to check in with you at the end of 2019 and see how Securitize is progressing. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers.